When Captain Tom died at the age of 100 in February 2021, there was an outpouring of grief. He was, of course, a national hero. He'd raised over 30 million quid for the NHS by walking laps of his garden. He was knighted by the Queen and he was credited with lifting the nation's spirits. His saying, tomorrow will be a good day, also trended on social media. He was never going to live forever. No one does. Living to 100 is a pretty good innings by anyone's standards. So why were so many people upset when a man they never knew had died? And when that man appeared to have had such a rich life, as well as a very long one? What does our reaction to his death say about our own relationship with the prospects of dying? How has the last year changed things? Have we become more comfortable during COVID, prioritising the lives of older people over the future prospects of younger people? And is it better to have lived longer or better? I'm Paul Dolan. I'm a professor of behavioural science at the London School of Economics. And this is the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I conduct research into human behaviour and happiness. I'm well aware, as I'm sure you are too, of the comfort that can be found in surrounding ourselves with people who agree with us and in dismissing and disliking anyone who sees the world differently. My aim with this podcast series is to tackle some of the issues that polarise us and to see if we could all become a little more accepting of difference. Today, I want to look at life and death. Well, mostly at death and at our fear of it. I consider the sometimes polarised perspectives of living longer as compared to living better. I'm joined again by my friend and colleague, Dr. Kate Laffin. Hello, Kate. How are you? Hi, Paul. Doing great. I'm just back from a much-needed holiday, so raring to go. As I said, we're going to be talking about life and death. Let's hear what a few members of the public had to say about it. I think it's really important to celebrate the life of someone when they've died. It's strange, but I, I actually enjoyed my own grandparents' funeral. Just understanding you know, who they were, what they achieved in their lives, everybody that they knew, how popular they were. I think it's really, really important to understand that. So, yeah, it sounds strange, but I think it is important to celebrate the life of someone. But also, you know, enjoy it as well. Even though it's a certainty, I think people are scared of dying because they can't really imagine a world without themselves. Personally, I don't know if I'm scared of dying. I wouldn't like to to happen now, but to be honest, I think I'm more scared of aging, if I'm honest. I'd much rather have a shorter, happy life than a longer, miserable one and end up in a care home swallowing up all my hard-earned cash. I think that having a long life is going to open you up to more experiences. And that's the most important thing in life. And also, if you live longer, you can end up influencing more people, hopefully for the better. So quite a variety of thoughts there then, Kate. What do you make of it all? Well, I think there's <laughs> there's something to be said about having more experiences, certainly. But more good experiences, I think, would be the thing that's important to emphasise. If you live a very long life and you open yourself up to suffering at the end of your life, just by virtue of hanging in there, but but being in, in fairly bad nick, that's not something that I think lots of us would be willing to sign up for. So I was hoping that the pandemic would actually give us an opportunity to discuss these issues more openly, honestly. We know we will die. That's pretty clear. I think all of us are going to die at some point. So the question really is about one of the few main facts there are. And so 
the when and how are fundamental. And we've had a failure to discuss those, it seems to me. Let's just deal with the when. You've known me well enough, long enough to know that I'm a fully committed egalitarian in the sense that I want to reduce inequalities over the lifetime. It's not about any one moment in time that matters. It's the entire lifetime. I want people to live better and longer lives. And the more that you've had of better and the more that you've had of longer, the less priority that you should get compared to those who have had less of both life experience and life expectancy. So maybe there's something to be said about how they die. One of the really crazy restrictions that was many people around the world face is just not being able to be with their family members as they passed over, not being able to have funerals of any shape or form that were able to celebrate their lives. We're particularly uncomfortable with the idea of having lived this life, arriving at a point where you die in a sort of a panic state, in a crisis moment, alone and without the people that love you around you. That seems to me pretty tragic. I think you're absolutely right. And the how of dying is as important as the when. But again, we've been scared of discussing that, scared of facing up to it. I feel like what we've done over the last few decades, perhaps, is sort of pretended that we can cheat death somehow. Then the pandemic's come along and it's been this massive slap in the face. And this sort of existential dread that people have, and particularly middle-aged people like me actually have, has driven so much of how we've, not just the policy responses to the pandemic, but how we've looked at it. Um, And we've seen it as calling into question this kind of sense of immortality almost that as a society we might have felt like we were moving towards. Generally, we don't speak an awful lot about death. And then when you're having these numbers thrown at you every day, Mm. there's been such a, a focus on those deaths of older people that we wouldn't have paid them any attention unless they were a close family member or a friend otherwise, whereas now we're hearing about them, you know, in daily statistics. Death is a frightening subject. And as Kate says, the last year has been terrifying for many people as the number of deaths from COVID has escalated. Most of those deaths were amongst older people. About 75% of deaths have been people aged over 75. Only about 1% of deaths have been people aged under 40. Now, of course, for the families involved, those deaths have all been very upsetting. And nothing can ever take away from that. But since death is always a question of when and not if, should our public priorities be influenced by the age at which people die? Brendan McCarthy works for the Church of England. He's a national advisor on medical ethics and social care. We've sort of got into our minds that that we can control it Um, certainly much more than previous generations. Back a couple hundred years ago, there were lots of books written about, you know, the the art of a good death, how to die well. It wasn't how to stop dying, but because of modern medicine, because of surgery, because of chemotherapy, and also because we're so darned used of being able to control so much else in our lives, or at least we think we can control it, death is now the, the, the great affront it's no longer the last bit of our living. It, it's something alien. It's an interruption. It's an end. It's oblivion. And, and previous generations, mostly, I think, just didn't think of it that way. I was wondering that in relation to, you know, whatever our views about how we either in our own countries or across the globe have responded to the pandemic, whether one of the reasons why we've been so scared of the virus is because as you say, we kind of maybe thought that we had death under control and it sort of comes along and reminds us that we don't. 
you know, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that really frustrated and annoyed me at the beginning of the pandemic, before it really took hold in the UK, there was a mantra that the media constantly spun out, which was when some poor individual person's death, someone who was known and loved and cared for and had a life of experiences and so on, this person died and the media ran out the mantra that he or she was either old or had pre-existing health conditions. Now, the message there was, the rest of us are okay. It hasn't touched us. Yes, it is true that most of the people who died were old or had underlying health conditions. This was also making young people ill. Young, otherwise healthy people were dying from it. Uh, And then this became something of real panic for lots of people. We distanced ourselves from it. The other people are at risk. Uh, And then once it came to the part where we might be at risk and we can't control it, I think that hit people very hard and possibly helped to feed what was undoubtedly at one stage a panic in the public. Um, I'm going to put this, is this putting this bluntly? I don't know. I mean, it's sad when an old person dies. It's both sad and tragic when a young person does. Would you agree with that? Well... Probably not, just in the way in which it, it's been phrased. Okay, good. In that. <laughs> First of all, it depends what you mean by an old person. So I'm thinking I'm, I'm including myself in that category, and I think my death would be a tragedy for so many people. A person who's lived to what the average life expectancy might either be for them at birth or in the current cohort. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Paul, if you'd said maybe for a young person, it's particularly tragic. <laughs> uh, I, I, I might go along with that. But I can think of lots of folk that I know, 75 plus, even well into their 80s, who have so much within themselves. And that, of course, is, I think, the most important thing, but who are also contributing so much to other people's lives that if somebody texted me or phoned me today and told me they had died, I would go, that's tragic. Now, statistically or economically, someone might say, well, it's not really tragic, but statistics don't die, people do. And of course, there there are lots of young people that on principle, I would feel that is tragic, but personally, I wouldn't feel it because I don't know them. And I think, you know, when we think of people's lives and the value of them, we have to take into context the whole sort of inclusive shape of their lives. And that includes the people who know them and care for them and love them, the people that are in their lives and the people who were in their lives. Um, So I think age alone is too blunt an instrument. Let me sort of play devil's advocate a bit with that for a second and say, if you were to present me now at the age of 53 with the prospects of saying, you know, you're going to live to 80, say even, and you're still going to be reasonably healthy and active at that point, and you're going to have an untimely death, would you take that? And I'd say, yeah, I would take that because I would have had opportunity to have lived the 80 years to that point. I completely take your point about there's obviously a future for many older people, but the fact is that they've had quite a significant past in the way that younger people haven't. And so when a, when a 40 year old dies, for example, it is both sad and tragic because not only have they lost whatever future years they might have, they haven't yet had the opportunity to have the experiences that older people have? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because 
as with all these things, they're, they're all sorts of shades and colours and tones that we have to put into the conversation. Yeah. At one end of that spectrum, we've got Brave New World, where the crystal or whatever in the palm of your hand changes colour and you go, whoops, that's it. I've got five years and everybody chips off. Pitching one against the other, that makes me feel uncomfortable. In terms of that last few moments sometimes, but, you know, weeks or months of our lives, do you not think we become so obsessed with extending life, almost literally at all costs psychologically and financially that we've lost sight of the process of dying and the manner of a good death yeah i I think we do folk like you know the general medical council and so on talk about overall benefit or something that's in the patient's best interests and i understand why we've done that because in the past we conflated that with the notion of quality of life i have no idea what your quality of life is externally looking at you from my perspective, is this for your overall benefit? Is is extending your life um, through technology, uh, through drugs and so on, is that in your best interests? And sometimes the answer is going to be no. The difficulty, of course, is that if we take that, which I think is a very you know sensible and obvious thing to say, but then we start writing policies and protocols about it, we then easily lapse into the old quality of life issue of saying, I can determine by going through a checklist what's in your best interest. And constantly, we must always deal with the person in front of us, not the age, not the disease, not the demographic profile, not the ethnicity, the disability, the person. And while principles and protocols and policies can act as guides they mustn't become a substitute for individual real life decisions. Is that, you know, like really genuinely when, when older family members and friends and, and, and other people have died, you know, having lived a full and rich life, I don't feel sad. Like, I, I, because I, because, because that's what's meant to happen. And I do feel a bit, I do feel a bit weird in that sense. Is I, I like, it's not, it's, it's like, that's what's meant to happen. That's what I would want. That's what we want for everybody else and, the, uh, and, uh, and ourselves. So, so where, why, is, why, do we, why do we have such a collective and individual grief around, around what's meant to happen? Yeah, you, you, you know, I, I think for what it's worth, probably part of it is we're just hardwired that way. Um, and, you know, some evolutionary biologist might be able to give an answer as to as to why we, we respond to that and we maybe don't recognize uh, the idea of fullness of age or, or, or years i mean i obviously just have to say yeah, I, do yeah. care, I do care about suffering i do i do care about you know yeah. i'm not just pathological i mean i do care that people die well but you know if they've died well then it's like Let's celebrate that a bit more. Well, you know, I, I agree with that. I, I do agree that there should be a, a lot more, a lot more celebrating of life at every stage and at every level, uh, and, and we should be celebrating a lot more frequently. And as you can tell from my accent, I'm Irish, and I celebrate a lot, and I know how to do it. Uh, and, and given the football result last <laughs> night, I also know how to drown my sorrows. So <laughs> I'm completely in favour of, of, of all of that. Um, but but also, I think we do also need to embrace, and this is the Irish thing as well, Paul, we need to embrace how to be melancholy. Uh, we need to, to be able to embrace how to be 
sad? How to be wistful? Uh, that, that's all part of what makes us human. Um, there, there are times that I think of and miss my maternal grandfather. Uh, he, he, he was the first person, the only person, when I was a kid to take me to football matches. Uh, and there, I still have dreams of waiting for him at the, at the corner of a street where the football ground was, waiting to see him in his flat cap. You know, it sounds very Andy Cap and all the rest of it, but waiting yeah, for him to appear, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when I was like 10 years old, to go in to the football match and the halftime chips and all the, all the rest of it. Uh, and I can say I still miss him. Uh, and I, I want to embrace that. I want to be able to embrace that melancholy and yeah. sense of mourning and not see that uh, as a negative, tragic thing. Th that's part of life as well. That was a very touching story about his grandfather, Kate. What do you make of what he had to say? Yeah, so absolutely lovely story and certainly nothing I would advocate against. Uh, I have my own fond memories of my grandparents. And one of the things that it draws out for me is the importance of older people's roles in the younger generation's lives. And within that, the need to emphasise the quality of older people's lives so that they're able to be in the condition where they can have those positive experiences with their grandchildren, with their children. And so one thing that medical spending, I think, should do is, is focus on extending and enhancing the quality of older people's lives rather than just focusing on increasing and increasing life expectancy without ever considering how those lives are lived. Death is obviously a subject that's really difficult to deal with. And that's why I wanted to talk to the cancer specialist, Dr. Carol Sikora. How we value life differs in different societies. In many societies, especially in developing countries, death is an accepted form of life. And, you know, I was in the WHO for a couple of years and I saw some amazing palliative care scenes without medicine, herbal remedies, the relatives all running around, the chickens, the children, and granddad was dying of a, a liver tumour. Everyone was happy. Granddad was happy. The family were happy. And he died, and then they had a ceremony. Slightly different from what we do here, but amazing. And the problem is, in our society, we can't accept that. We've got to say, well, who's done something wrong? Why is this person dying? Something is still wrong. I know it gets less as someone gets older, but we still have that question. You know, did they do something wrong in their care homes that yeah. grandma died last night? Why didn't they save her? Do you think that's changed over the last 50 or 100 years? Do you think we were more accepting of death previously? I think we were. It was part of life. If you go around old churchyards and look at the gravestones, and it says, in the midst of life, there is death. In many of these churchyards, of course, life was much shorter then. If you look at the dates yeah. on the gravestones, people lived to be 50, maybe 60. That was a good life. Your 90 that you talk about being a good life then, uh, there were people that lived to 90 uh, 100 years ago, but very few did. Most died in their 50s and 60s, and that was accepted then. Pensions were based on that. The pension only had to pay out for two years. Now it has to pay out for 30 years. And yeah. a lot of pension funds, especially public sector ones, are struggling with the funds available. Do you think our healthcare systems and society generally doesn't pay enough regard to the impact on others? I don't have faith myself, but where I think I live on and where you will live on is in the memories and in the conversations that people have about us. 
once we're dead. Why don't we give more attention to that? At the end of the day, it's family that really matters. People don't go to their graves saying, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. And uh, that's the way it goes. So I think once you face your own mortality, and if you get cancer, you face it. If you have a heart attack and recover, you face your own mortality. I think it makes you think, what's worthwhile doing? A sort of bucket list. And you go and do things. I've got this obsession that I've got to have everything in order if I drop dead this afternoon. So I've got a file and I've told my kids and I've told my wife, this is the file. This is all you need to sort out the paperwork. And it's, it's silly, but it, it makes me happy. Whereas a lot of people don't want to do that. They don't face up to the fact that they are actually going to go at some point. And it may be quicker than they think. It often is. I think talking about it, just in a matter of fact way, it's going to happen at some point. Let's just sort out how we're going to deal with this. And then you forget about it after that. I've been a cancer consultant now for over 40 years. And when I started, we lied to patients. We didn't tell them they had cancer. We made up stories about infection, about cysts, even TB. We told people they had TB because they knew we could cure TB rather than tell them they had cancer. So that is a goal. We're up front about you've got cancer. When the cancer starts to spread, it's a bad prognosis. Sure, we can treat it with chemotherapy, maybe immunotherapy, but the prognosis is poor. And it gets worse if you've gone from first-line therapy to second-line to third-line. The prognosis is hopeless at that point. We're much less informative to patients about the real prognosis at that phase. So they know they've got cancer, get over that, but we don't say the prognosis is really poor. And that's the, the missing bit. There's a really powerful narrative around hope, isn't there? But actually, an equally powerful narrative should be, at least insofar as uh, it affects our well-being, is acceptance. Would you agree that we generally give disproportionate weight to hope over acceptance? We do, and it's a big argument uh, in medical circles. So, uh, you know, those that provide, say, complementary therapies for cancer are full of hope. They try not to cross the line and say they're sometimes rather bizarre therapies, whether it's yoga, whether it's herbal medicine, whether it's massage and some, is actually going to cure cancer. But they, they sort of imply hope. In orthodox medicine, we tend to be more honest. We say, well, there's a 20% chance of this drug working, and I'm afraid we've done another scan, and it's just not worked. And really, there's nothing much more we can do. So that's a pretty blunt, hope-removing type approach to it all. Whereas the complementary therapist, as long as you're alive, there's hope. If you remove hope, you're doing it at your own peril. What have you got left if you remove all hope? they still want some sort of hope that maybe they'll be alive tomorrow. Maybe they'll be able to go for a walk with their loved ones. Maybe they'll see their grandchildren. When you go back to someone that dies in their 20s or or a child dying, it's a sad occasion because they never had the opportunity. And then it's how many years are you entitled to? And then you get the question, should we value a life of a 10-year-old more than a 90-year-old. And that's where you get into difficult, how you allocate health resources. They're the sorts of challenges that I've been facing in my academic life for quite a long time. One thing that makes the choice between a 10-year-old and a 90-year-old different to a choice between, say, a man and a woman or a 
gay person or a straight person, a black person, a white person, is that we will all be the ages that we will be through to our death. So when you're comparing a 10-year-old to a 90-year-old, you're really comparing the same person 80 years apart. And so giving priority to the 10-year-old over the 90-year-old would, for me, be entirely fair because the 90-year-old has had opportunity to be all ages, including 10. We, we had an exercise where we gave all the oncologists in the group a series of cards with different cases. And at the extreme ends, it's easy to choose who you'd got. Obviously, there were cancer example. So we had a, a 20-year-old with Hodgkin's disease at one end that uh, wanted second-line therapy. It cost £100,000. At the other end, we had an 85-year-old that wanted third-line chemotherapy for lung cancer. He'd been a heavy smoker. He was a prisoner in Wormwood Scrubs for murder, and he'd had a bad life. Now, there you go. 20-year-old, curable cancer. 80-year-old, probably much less chance of cure. Same cost, £100,000. You've only got £100,000 in the budget. Which card do you pick to treat? And obviously, everyone goes for the 20-year-old with Hodgkin's. And you'd say, well, that's fair enough. Nothing to do with smoking, nothing to do with being in Wormwood Scrubs, the prison or anything like that. The problem is that it's very rare you get these two extremes, which are clear cut. And it's difficult when you've got a, a healthcare budget, which is always going to be limited. Even if you double the spending on the NHS, you're still limited with your budget. So you've got to ration it in some form. How do you allow for age in your rationing process? You know, what's happened now because of COVID, a lot of services that they're not exciting services, psychiatric services for children, deafness in kids, they're sort of shut down. And exist in the private sector, but for many people, they're unaffordable. So that the kids go without those services. Uh, care homes have to be there because old people have to live somewhere. So they sort of carry on. Uh, is that correct? Should we look at doing something for younger people with disorders that are not considered as frontline or important? Yet to them and to their long-term future, they are. I mean, if you have unrecognized deafness in a child, that child won't get the education they deserve and they won't perform to, to their capacity in terms of intellectual capacity because they can't hear or if they can't see the same thing. Should we make a bigger investment in that sort of screening for defects that are reversible? Again, that's all age-related. And I would say put more effort into the young people and less effort into the old people. What's it matter if a few care home people have got unseen diabetes? It doesn't matter. They're at the end of their lives. But a kid with deafness that's seven should be recognized because his future depends on him getting a correction. Age, I think, really is important in selecting healthcare, economy, and interventions from that. Kate, what do you think of what Carol had to say about putting more investment into younger people rather than older ones? Yeah, I think it's really hard to argue it. I think his case is a very convincing one, um, especially when you see what negative impacts having conditions on younger people can have throughout their lives, you know, and, and how that impacts on not just their health, but also their social relationships, their economic viability. I think there's a huge case to be made for really trying where possible to catch issues early. There's both physical and mental health issues early in young people and addressing them in as best a way possible. And I would see that as being a high priority relative to those targeted focuses on expanding life expectancy without a focus on quality of life. So, yeah, very convinced. <laughs> 
Thanks a lot, Kate. So there's the arguments relating to prioritising different age groups. I need to talk to someone who really understands the nature of these trade-offs and whose research directly plays into policy. We're now going to hear from Professor Aki Suchia. She's a health economist and her research speaks directly to the trade-off that people make between life expectancy and life experience and also between people of different ages. We've known each other for over two decades. We were both heavily influenced by Professor Alan Williams at the University of York in the 1990s. He was a passionate advocate of the fair innings argument. This is the egalitarian principle that everyone is entitled to some normal span of health, usually expressed in life years, and anyone failing to achieve that has been cheated. He was in his 60s when I met him, and he died in 2005, aged 77. He felt very lucky to have lived a relatively long and full life. So in speaking to Aki, I wanted to really drill down into whether the fair innings had actually played any part at all in our response to COVID. There's got to be a recognition that we're all going to die one day. The ones who don't die today, it's not as if they're not going to die forever. And if we think about it in terms of, well, how much health or how much life a person is going to have overall, whoever doesn't die today is going to die in the future. And we are talking about the timings of things. And that goes back, that is related to the need to think about years of life lost, not the number of deaths. It's not about young versus old. It's about different timings in each person's lives. We're not saying um, there's, there's a bunch of people called old people who we don't mind if they died. And there's a bunch of people who are young people and we don't want them to die. And they're going to remain young forever. No, these young people, if they go on living, they're going to be old and they're going to go into the... So it's this idea of um, different life stages that we're all going to face and looking at somebody's lifespan as a whole rather than just getting too fixated on the current so why do you think we are, we have been so blind almost to the fact that we may be shortening the life expectancies of those people who probably have relatively short life expectancies anyway? The ability to look at somebody's whole lifespan is, is a very detached way of looking at things. It might be one of those more reflective and analytical type of way of thinking of the mind, which doesn't resonate or which, which isn't quite linked into the, the the immediate way in which people react and respond and communicate with other people where you don't look at the whole baggage behind the person, you look at the person here now mm. today. Mm. And that makes it difficult to say, like, I can really imagine the case of a, a bedside decision where you have two patients, different age, very different age, and you have to choose one or the other. You, you don't it's, it's very difficult to get into the mindset where you, you have to take a step back to be able to say, look, this person has had 80 years and this person has only had 40 years. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I've been arguing, as, as you know, a lot over this last year for even a, a sort of checklist approach where you would have different categories of cost and benefit in front of you when making decisions so that at least you would be alert to the possible consequences of a prioritisation decision in one direction. Economics has been, or, or modern economics, has had something to do with the idea that more is good, more is better, you should always aim for more, you should maximise. And you know, sometimes enough is enough. And sometimes the enough, the, the level of enough is not determined in some maximum sense. So if you have a meal, enough is enough in that the, the size of your stomach de determines how much is enough. In something like life, I can imagine the feeling that yeah, I've done I've done the things that I wanted to do. There are some more things that 
would be nice to be able to see and more would be nice but there'll be a bonus yeah and and whether or not it's fair to pursue those if there is a clear opportunity cost to somebody else that's when we might start using the language of being selfish i think of myself as a very compassionate person but i genuinely don't i genuinely don't have any sorrow for hearing about someone's grandparents having died at 90 because like everyone would take that that's 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 entirely what what you would want i mean the people dying at at 50 that's sad people dying of at 20 that's tragic and seeing the coffin of a child that that makes me cry um it makes me cry because they haven't yet had the opportunities to you know live the lives that the 90 year olds have had i just i just wonder why given that yeah. given that most people do think this i mean i'm not saying anything that's controversial yeah, yeah. but why is it that why can't we have a grown-up conversation about that and that's the distinction between the cognitive and affective i think in that there's a shock of discontinuity there's the shock of finding that somebody you counted on no longer exists, or at least no longer exists in a physical sense. And that discontinuity can be a shock. Again, another interesting discussion, but I'm still, I'm still puzzled why, given that death is about the only certainty of life, why people are still so shit scared of it. I'm going to speak to Amanda Henwood. She's a PhD student of mine. She's a psychologist who did lots of research for my book, Happy Ever After, including looking closely at issues to do with end of life. So she's perfectly placed to provide insights into why we are so scared of dying. I would imagine the reason for that is going to be evolutionary, right? Because it's in our advantage if we can actually sustain our survival for as long as possible, if we want to pass on our seeds to the next generation and, and keep the population going. I mean, there's also, to a large degree, it's wrapped up in our sense of self and our sense of identity and how important that is to us throughout our lives. And I suppose death represents those two things being suddenly taken away from us. Yeah, but is it suddenly taken away from us? I'd bite your hand off if you said I could live to a 90. And so by the time I get into my 80s, it's going to be expected that it's going to be taken away from me. I agree with you with young death, but when we're older, I mean, that's what's meant to happen, right? It is what's meant to happen, but I think well, there's some evidence to suggest that as we get older, people actually value any short extension to life even more so than we do when we're younger. So there's something going on there when we get nearer to death. Actually, it's harder for us to let go of life. Although, yeah, although about to, I mean, having about said to. that, fear of death tends to decrease in older people. So there's a bit of a paradox there. So we tend to be less scared of it, although we'd be willing to pay more to prolong our lives. We're less scared of death happening. Let's deal with that fear thing because it's been really interesting in relation to the pandemic and we can't help but discuss that to some extent. Of course, we've had a arguably a magnification of fear across the populations of, around the world over this last year about dying. Is there any evidence that that's related to age and whether people are more scared at particular times in their life? So there's this thing out there, which I know you're familiar with, called terror management theory. And there's lots and lots of evidence behind this. Yeah theory suggesting that if you manipulate people's or the extent to which people are aware of their own death they do various things to compensate for the anxiety that that generates so they will cling more strongly to certain worldviews and certain values or identities that they uphold and they'll be more judgmental of anything that conflicts with those so when we're looking at people in their 80s and 90s we don't notice all the ones that have died long before that point one of my concerns about what we've done in response to the pandemic is that we've actually implemented measures that will shorten the life expectancies of those that already had relatively short lives. 
And so we won't notice them because they will die sooner. And that's tragic. I think that's, that's morally suspect if we're not showing regard for those people whose lives would be short anyway. No, I agree. And I think this is a case where sometimes our emotional responses can override our more rational responses. We kind of get an instinct blindness almost where we kind of so affected by the possibility or prospect of something that we fail to actually rationalise the other consequences that are at play when we're making any decision. And I think that's definitely been the case with COVID. Yeah. You and I have a paper coming out shortly where one of the things that we draw attention to is the fact that even in calmer times, we're spending about 25% of our healthcare budgets in the last few weeks of someone's life. Yeah. I mean, we can't make any substantive claims about whether that's an efficient use of resources, but it's likely that's a bit too much. Why do we still continue to throw money at extending lives past the point at which it might be optimal either for the person, the family, or for healthcare systems? Well, I think think the medical sector has a tough time with this because they obviously train people up, doctors, to be... Well, death in in the case of a doctor is seen as a failure. And I think that that's largely ingrained in a lot of the training because most of the cases they will deal with, saving the life is the optimal outcome. And so it challenges people's automatic associations when you then switch that around suddenly at the end of life and you suddenly you've got to think about palliative care and things like this, which doctors are now very good at doing, but I think there are other barriers in place such as the families, for example, who a lot of them really do struggle to contemplate the end of that person's life, perhaps selfishly, or perhaps it's because they don't want that person to feel like they're a burden and that to be the reason for their death. Things like that can make the the conversations between doctors and patients and families very difficult and probably add extra barriers. I just wonder what you then think about the selfishness bit of this, which is the the fact that the reason that I want my relatives and loved ones to continue living is for me, not for them, and how much there might be a discrepancy between what the patient or the person wants and what their families desire. It's quite challenging looking after someone at the end of their lives. It's a difficult thing for families to go through, and I don't know why why you'd want to extend that when it's in a situation that's so bad that the person can't sustain their life in any form on their own. We generally, as a society, we care a lot about health and we see health as a final, well, as a determinant of happiness. And I suppose because those things are so intertwined in people's minds, they're associating the extension of life with an increase in that person's happiness, whereas that's obviously not the case when you get to end of life. And again, I think people probably struggle to shift these automatic associations that have been so ingrained. And we've also got wider narratives about how heroic it is for people to fight right up until their death. And when you near death, you lose self-esteem. That's one of the things that terror management theory predicts. And in order to deal with that, people tend to create this fighting narrative because it helps them to confront that idea that they might be unable to support themselves anymore. But of course they are. And so I think an acceptance narrative would be far more beneficial for everyone in that situation. But we just don't seem to do that. Another interesting episode. As with all the issues that we've discussed, I'm not sure any short conclusion can do justice to the complexity of life and death and our emotions surrounding them. Another great set of guests too. They've helped to draw out three important distinctions that are relevant to any discussion of the when and how of dying. The first is the personal versus the policy. 
Brendan reminded us of the uniqueness of everyone's lives and of the loss that is felt by those close to the person who dies. I was struck by his comments about embracing the melancholy. But we parted ways a bit when we were discussing resource allocation decisions and where we can't avoid making trade-offs between different age groups, even if these are sometimes implicit or hidden. A decision to spend more on geriatric care means that there is less for paediatric care. Carol drew our attention to these kinds of trade-offs and to the fact that life experiences of younger and older people matter just as much as concerns about life expectancies. Carol also drew our attention to the distinction between hope and acceptance surrounding end-of-life care. We have so much of the former in our attitude towards dying and nowhere near enough of the latter. Of course, like all the issues we have discussed, nothing is ever truly duck or rabbit and a life without hope is an empty one. But we are all going to die and we must do more to accept that, to discuss it with our loved ones and to do all that we can to ensure that we have a good death so far as that is possible. And maybe above all else, we need to free ourselves of the narrative that drives us to fight death to the very bitter end. The third distinction that I want to briefly discuss is between our hot emotional responses and our cold deliberative ones, or between system one and system two, as we discussed on previous episodes of the podcast. Amanda reminded us that we have an understandable fear of dying. I mean, let's face it, most of us are shit scared. And it's hard for us to detach ourselves from this when we consider policy decisions and responses to pandemics. As you will have gathered by now, I am a committed lifelong and lifetime egalitarian. I care about people's life experiences and their life expectancies. I think it's hard to argue from this from a policy perspective where we must accept death more and fear it less. The panic of the pandemic has led us away from calm decision making. And so it's not surprising that these discussions and in particular of the fair innings, have fallen by the wayside. We must not put in place policies that will shorten and curtail the life expectancies and life experiences of those that we won't notice, those who won't live very long or well in the first place. Now, in no way does this suggest that we simply let people die, rather that we manage their deaths properly. We should seek to create as much benefit as possible for the dying person, and crucially for those left behind. I appreciate that a death from, as opposed to with COVID, is an awful way to die. But this provides all the more reason to do all we can to limit the pain, grief and suffering it causes. Some of the ways in which we've treated people with COVID and their families have been frankly inhumane. A complete version of the Ferenin's argument would account for life experience as well as life expectancy. So those younger people with underlying health conditions who are at serious risk from COVID would be afforded a very high priority on account of the fact that their lifetime prospects will be lower than that for the general population, even in the absence of COVID. I emphasise this point because it illustrates the essence of my arguments that extend way beyond COVID. I reckon that this is the episode that I have the strongest views about, the one where I'm most clear about what animal I see in the image. Any threat to human life and well-being, and our response to it, should be judged principally in terms of its effects on well-being over the lifetime. Well-being over the lifetime affects all that I feel, too. Both my grandparents died in their 70s. Like Alan Williams, they considered their lives to have been long enough and good enough. Of course, I was sad when they died, but their funerals were largely celebrations for me. I wish you all long and happy lives, but don't expect me to be sad when I hear that you've died in your 80s. And celebrate my death. Well, you know what I mean. If I'm lucky enough to make it that far. 
I'm Professor Paul Dolan. That was the That Rabbit Podcast, and it was a Mother Come Quickly production. Next time, why do you care so much about whether I have pineapple on my pizza? And other major issues of polarisation. This podcast forms part of the Shaping the Post-Covid World Initiative of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thank you.